<laughs> so, tonight's reading is from Isaiah chapter 30, verses 1 through 5, and 12 through 22. Please follow along. Ah, stubborn children, <laughs> declares the Lord, who carry out the plan, but not mine, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. For though his officials are at zone and his envoys reach Hanes, everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them that brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant, and its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found with which to take fire from the hearth or to dip up water out of the cistern. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling, and you said, No, we will flee upon horses. Therefore you shall flee away, and we will ride upon swift steeds. Therefore, your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you shall flee, till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice, Blessed are all those who wait for him. For a people shall dwell in Zion in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself any more, but your eyes shall see your teacher. And your ears shall hear a word behind you, saying, This is the way, walk in it, when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. Then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, Be gone. Hello. Just a second. I don't, uh, anyone know what these are? Are these microphones? Anyway, um, I just, I'm still confused about that, but um, thanks for coming. I'm Sid. I'm going to get this microphone stand eventually settled. Come on. Okay, this is a tough one. The key, oh, okay, thank you. Unsuccessful. Okay. <laughs> okay. Gotta leave it alone. Gotta leave it alone. Okay. 
for those who don't know me, uh, I'm not usually this neurotic. Uh, my name is Sid Drew, and I'm the campus minister with RUF Reform University Fellowship. It's a Christian campus ministry that exists to serve you all in this campus, and we mean you all uh, in the broadest sense of that phrase. Uh, we mean it wherever you are, however you are. Uh, we mean that in terms of we don't want to be a place for just one particular social scene on campus. We don't want to be a place for just one particular kind of personal background. We want to reflect the campus and we want to reflect uh, the diversity of the campus and also, and we mean that even just spiritually as well. You can be here and not be sure what you think of Jesus um, or what you think about Christianity. We're really glad you're here exploring with us. And if you want to grow and you're Christian, I hope you can do that too through what we talk about tonight. So um, anyway, uh, I'd love to meet you if you're new and I haven't met you. Uh, also, I bet Eric and Maddie, who are the interns, your interns, our interns, uh, will would love to meet you. And then there's plenty of students, too, that will say hello. Um, and, of course, there's snacks in the back at the end. Please factor in some time for the snacks. They Give them justice. Okay, so this semester in large group, we're looking at the book of Isaiah and uh, the Old Testament, the first two-thirds of the Bible. And we're looking at the topic, who God is. As a reminder, studying Isaiah is worth your time and energy for two reasons. More than that, but I'm going to give you two. The first one, Isaiah's full screen IMAX format pictures God in a way that leads us to ask ourselves a healthy question. That's sort of a heart or gut check question. What do you really believe about God? Are you sure you know who God is? Are you sure you know who God is? And then the second question um, or the second sort of reason that we study Isaiah is these same scenes provide what I was calling last week, and I'll say again, an MRI of God's character. And this is so important, especially in the uncertainties of life. You know, the streaks that we have of happiness or suffering, the streaks of fear or boredom. And the idea is when we don't know what God's doing, when we can't trace his hand, we can trust his heart we get to trace, and I like that image, we're not freehand drawing, we're tracing. We get to trace who God is at a character that does not change no matter what level. And that's what we're looking at tonight. So, so far this semester, uh, we've seen God's nearness and his bigness. We've seen God's holiness. We've seen God's trustworthiness. We've seen God as the object or basis of our hope. And then tonight we're going to skip, oh, I don't know, 19 chapters. And we're going to skip to Isaiah 30. And we're looking at God's unchanging patience. And by the way, I feel like I have to justify that. It's 65 chapters. So we got we to gotta move. Um, so I hope you, I'm, trust you're just reading it along on your own, <laughs> catching up as you will. Okay. But before we talk about Isaiah 30 and God's patience, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thanks for the opportunity to speak and to, to be with these students. And uh, I'm just thankful to be able to, to take some time with this passage. It's really dense and really beautiful. Um, and it's just uh, got a lot that I hadn't thought about. And I, and I bet a lot of people in the room haven't thought about. And I just ask that you would really reveal it to us, that you'd uh, lift up the veil, that you would um, uncloud our vision and unstop our ears, and that you would help us to know you better, God. We're, no, no matter where we are with you, no matter how skeptical we feel or no matter how confident we are that you show up in the sprinkle room, I pray that you would meet us here and that we would be changed by it and that we would know that we are in the presence of a patient God. 
Uh, that's my prayer. And Jesus, would you be high and lifted up and more believable and beautiful to the eyes of our hearts as a result of this time together, uh, these words that we share? I ask these in your name. Amen. So I, I just can start with a question. Have you ever had like a really important moment uh, and in the middle of that really important moment, you have this like really self-conscious thought uh, that makes you ask like, you know, you're in a conversation, an interview, whatever it is, and you sort of go, how did I get here? Why am I here again? Have you had that moment before? Um, and like, it's all you can do to get through the moment, to find the words, to find the escape routes, to, to get out of the situation um, and maybe that sounds vague, so of course I'm going to start with a story from my life that will illustrate this for you. More annals of embarrassment from my college career. Um, it was my sophomore year uh, at Davidson, and life actually felt like it was beginning to work. I don't know if you've had this experience. It must have been early in the semester. Um, <laughs> I had just become a Christian the month before, uh, and my classes in my second string soccer career uh, both felt much less intense and actually felt fun again. It was amazing. And I was living in the dream, I felt like, but then I did it. I'm not exactly sure how it happened or why I thought it was a good idea at the time, but there I was in a relationship, a romantic relationship with the same woman I had broken up with two months before. I don't know how I got there. You see, she, it was not tear for the record, just, be, just clear that up, my wife, not her. She didn't go to Davidson with me, it's not her. So even more embarrassing. Uh, This Davidson senior, I was a sophomore, big deal, uh, had cheated on me during the summer abroad before. And I can still remember that sitting with her on her bed uh, in the senior apartments. Oh, this this stand. Okay, I can still remember sitting there in the bed in the senior apartments uh, and her tearfully telling me in exquisite detail how it all happened that summer for her and how she betrayed me. I can still feel that icy coldness kind of surge up in my heart and move into my limbs at that moment. But kind of over a month later, I had gotten perspective. Uh, you know, after that breakup, I had been like, well, it was an unhealthy relationship. I don't like who I was with her. Uh, and even before the cheating, I rested too much of me on her. Uh, she couldn't give me the unconditional love, the truth, uh, the purpose that I needed. And we were in a healthy spot. We weren't mature enough to look to other sources outside of ourselves for those things. And so I had come to that conclusion, yet somehow, there I was again, and I found myself in the courtyard of Little Library on a beautiful day, talking with her and her parents. And I can remember I was in the middle of the small talk kind of conversation with her very serious father and her highly nurturing mother. I don't know if you've had that combo before in your life. And I had this moment, and I remember thinking, First, I need to go catch the bus, uh, the team bus to go to Furman. And then I thought, Sid, what are you doing here? (laughs) What on earth? Why are you here in this moment? And I asked myself, what do you mean? (laughs) What are you doing back together with this girl? Yes, maybe you've forgiven her, but can't you see you're going in the exact same direction that you were going before? That same desperate place you went before? Why, are re- why in the world are you reconnecting with her parents at this moment in front of the library? Get out, said the voice, now. <laughs> and so right in front of the library, in mid-conversation with my on-again girlfriend and her on-again parents, I had a self-conscious thought 
I need to break up with her again. And so within a few days, I broke up with her again uh, with somebody that I had loved. It was really hard. I know that's a really intense story. Details uh, don't and should not apply to everyone here. But I think we can all relate on some level to that scene. Can't we? Yeah? Okay. Nod? Okay, that's good. Uh, after all, I'm just, you know, emotional up here. Um, I'm a human being. Uh, after all, we have life strategies, okay? We are all working the angles. We're all working hard in order to get what we want, right? The happiness behind the success, that's what we're after. The love from another person. The control over all that feels uncontrollable academically this time of year. We're all working these things, and we have these strategies that we work in order to be delivered, in order to escape loneliness, in order to avoid pain, in order to, to kind of deal with the nameless shame and guilt that we feel so often. And often our strategies are not all that creative, which I think is amazing. If I think about it, most of us, most of the time, return to that same person or thing that at first felt like it was going to work, but then over time uh, didn't work, especially the last time, and let's be honest, the last few times it didn't work. We go back to the ex-girlfriend for all the wrong reasons. We return again to pornography, or calorie counting, or getting less sleep to fit everything else in, and we only feel more shame, we only feel more hopeless as a result of these strategies. And this is exactly what the ancient Israelites and Judah were doing in Isaiah 30. I, don't, I know you can't believe that, but it's true. They were going back to Egypt. If you were like in that scene, you would, be un, you would be in as great a shock as Isaiah is. They're going back to the nation that enslaved them for 430 years. They're going back to the country that had a history of over-promising and under-delivering at crunch time, especially when it came to military support. In the words of a friend of mine, John Kraft, this is a bad strategy. <laughs> bad strategy. But the Lord God is offering a good strategy. Look, not all strategies, not all planning are bad after all, right? The prophet Isaiah tells us in the midst of our crises, at the bottom of our aching longings, he says this, return, even for the first time, and trust in God, and rest upon his strength and quietness. Why? Because the Lord is waiting patiently, tripping over himself to love you relentlessly and excessively. So in a sentence, Isaiah chapter 30 verses 1 through 5 and 12 through 22 tell us, return and rest expectantly in God. So return and rest expectantly in God because God is patient. God is patient with us, and he's patient with his love. Isaiah invites us into this expectant posture with a patient God, and he does it by detailing an example of one human bad strategy for life, and then the consequences that fall out from that. And at the same time, though, he also details God's good life strategy and its motivations, the motivations for why we should choose that path, choose that strategy. And we see this argument kind of play out in two distinct stages, which by the way, if you wanna get ahead of yourselves, is on your outline, on your handout. Okay, so if you look there with me, first in verses five, one through five and 12 through 17, Isaiah explains why our life strategies often don't work. 
Why do they not work? Second, in verses 15 and then 18 through 22, Isaiah explains how God's patience is life strategy. That's where we're going. That's what we're looking at. And again, outline on your handout. And we're going to begin with the beginning. And we're going to look first at verses 1 through 5 and 12 through 17. And we're going to look at the nature and failure of a lot of our human strategies. So that's where we're going first. So you look with me at verses 1 through 5. So if you look there, Isaiah historically is grounding our bad life strategies in his own time and place, right? So it's the early 700s BC in the southern kingdom of ancient Israel, what we're going to call Judah from now on, and that's what because that's what the scriptures call it. And due to a previous king, we talked about this a few weeks ago. I don't expect you to remember. You got a lot in your man, your, your brains and minds here, okay? But King Ahaz made a bad deal with with Assyria, right? And it was a bad alliance-making move. Isaiah and his people are now a vassal state. They're under the subjection and oppression of the, of the Assyrian kingdom or empire of ancient Assyria. But King Hezekiah, the next in line after Ahaz, and his advisor have this strategy, right? Oh, it's so good. We're going to get freedom. We're going to get happiness. And we're going to be delivered from our heavy burdens and unhappiness. How, you might ask? By making yet another alliance, <laughs> this time with Egypt at the cities of Zoan and Hanes, verse 4. So this Egyptian alliance is a bad idea. <laughs> Why is it a bad idea? Okay, first of all, because of what Jews' leaders did not do. They did not ask God's opinion, right? We see in verse 1, they carry out a plan, but not mine, declares the Lord. Second reason the alliance is a bad strategy, because it refers back to what I said earlier. This is the same Egypt who enslaved them, right? For 430 years. That's not just one generation, okay? This is the same Egypt who has promised before to help the Philistines just 10 years before against the same Assyrians. And guess what happened? They short-armed them. Egypt didn't come through. They didn't send enough troops and the, the Philistines got conquered by the Assyrians and punished severely just 10 years before in Ashdod in 712 BC. So, bad idea. And this is why Isaiah tells his original audience, the ancient Judahites, the protection of Pharaoh shall turn to your shame and the shelter and the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. Verse 3. And, keep going, Egypt is a people that cannot profit them, that brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. Verse 5. That is despite the promise of Egypt that, you know, they've got swift horses, they've got cavalry. Verse 16. That's what we're talking about. It's returning to and resting on Egypt's strength is unhelpful and a complete disadvantage. It will only lead to Judah's military, then political, then personal humiliation. But look, I don't want you to lose Isaiah's bigger point in this history. Yes, I get it. I'm going into the historical weeds, okay? And some of you are like, great. And some of you are like, oh, that's okay. Because I want you to see this really clearly that Isaiah and the Bible are deadly serious about history. That's super important. This is not like if I were to file the book of Isaiah and the Bible in little library, I would not file it in the fiction section. It's not folk tales to get better in life, okay? It's history, it's fact, 
And then he's making it very clear. And if you check the historical annals of the ancient Near East, you will find that it accords. So again, small point, but worth making. Okay, back to what we're talking about. Isaiah's actually using this historical example to demonstrate what's wrong with our strategies. What's the place that we return to when we feel stressed? What's the place that we go when we just want to feel okay? Like Egypt, my guess is it has a terrible track record of not helping and even ensnaring us. But we're chasing the first high, right? It's the first hit of dopamine to our brain's amygdalas. That's what we're looking for. Is Egypt a number on a scale? Is Egypt a grade in a class that means future acceptance to that school? Or a grade that lays out before you a career path that you really want? Is Egypt the late night text from a boy or a girl or a friend? For many of us, Egypt is just a click away. A virtual relationship with an immersive first-person per, first shooter game. Or insta-fame based on likes and comments. Or just holding the attention of a totally naked and exposed man or woman with mostly fake body parts. Regardless of what poor strategy we pursue, the point is that they lead to bad ends. Something good like a relationship, a good thing, is something that we can invest too much of ourselves in. Something bad like pornography is where we can spend our good longings and our good hopes in vain. These Egypts can lead into a pattern of addiction where we repeat the activity looking for more novelty and more dosage and getting diminishing returns. We feel less dopamine we feel less okay. We feel less ecstatic every time we do it. And we feel more ashamed every single time we try to stop long enough to not do it. Like Egypt, our bad strategies can become an addiction, which leads to feelings of humiliation, uselessness, shame, and disgrace. And these strategic consequences are what verses 12 through 17 are picturing in poetic detail for us. Notice that the way verse 12 picks up the ensnarement of addiction. It plainly tells us that we and ancient Judah can trust in oppression and perverseness, another way of saying human cunning or novelty, and rely on these things. That is, look, what first looks to be a deliverer can actually turn into our oppressor. And then verses 13 and 14 and 17 give us three signatures of what the oppression can do to us when we put the whole weight of ourselves on the wrong people or the wrong things, right? So verse 13 describes the self-destructive effects as the slow seeping of cracks, then bulges, and then finally the sudden collapse under our own weight. Verse 14 describes this, the unsparing spiritual shattering that results from this collapse, the anxiety, the depression, that make us feel utterly useless. And finally, verse 17 describes how our fears and insecurities can get all the more twisted and all the more irrational to the point where the everyday, very predictable, say 1,000 to 1 odds kind of things can make us hide and take cover in our beds and run for cover from other people. 
I, look, this is hard to hear. I get that. Okay, I, it feels hard for me to say. It feels hard. It was hard to write. It's hard for me to think about. I'm professionally religious. Okay, that's what I do for a living. My mortgage depends on this. Okay, but I am constantly running to Egypt. I'm constantly running in my heart, in my mind, in my actions, in my feelings. I'm going to Egypt over and over and over again. And I just want you to say, and yet I think that Isaiah is belaboring this point, and I just want to bring that out a little bit. He's belaboring our ensnarement to weak life strategies because he wants us actually to be free. God wants us to be free, and he, says, he knows that the only way to be free is to actually come to yourself. The only way to be free is to have that self-conscious thought that makes us question why in the world are, what are we doing here? How did we get here, right? How do exactly do we get to this place? We need this difficult self-awareness because in the words of Johann Goethe, no one is more of a slave than he who thinks himself free without being so. That is, no one is more of a slave than the person who thinks himself free without being free. Does it make sense? There's deception. So how do we get free and wholehearted again? Right? I, I could just pray. This could be over. Uh, <laughs> no hope. But this is the question that I think verse 15 and verses 18 through 22 are engaging with us. They're going back and forth with us about how do we get free? How do we get wholehearted? And so we can move from our strategies to God's strategy, our second and final point. According to verse 15, this freedom and integrity looks like salvation in returning and in rest. And it looks like strength and quietness and in trust. That is, deliverance happens, salvation happens through turning from our precious and lavishly cared for human strategies, turning from those and turning to God. Okay? We bring our stresses, we bring our sorrows, we bring our secrets, and we collapse on Jesus. That's what the passage is advocating. We, have, we haul our strategies by the armful, and we lay our heads on Jesus like a pillow. We trust in strength that's not our own. We spiritually imagine that God exists and that God actually cares about us, even when we feel lonely and life's painful, and there are shames in living in a world that is far from ideal. The Bible calls all of this, all of this returning and rest, two simple words, repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Look, you might be familiar with those words. You might be unfamiliar with those words. But we all struggle to find them in a way that is actually practicable. You're going to get into a pet peeve for a second here, okay? So what does it mean to, be, to repent and believe? I'm so tired, tired as a, as a professional speaker, of imagining what it would look like to lay my burdens at the feet of Jesus. I'm tired of that. You know why? What does that mean in the 2019s? What does it mean to lay non-physical burdens at non-physical feet. I don't get it. So let me try to do this. Um, we're going to have some straight talk with Sid. <laughs> straight talk about repentance and faith. Is that okay? Can we do this? Practicable straight talk. First, we only get free of our false strategies by naming them as a problem. 
You gotta name your false strategies as a problem. You and I have to confess. We've gotta confess to ourselves. We've gotta confess to God. We've gotta confess to each other. We've gotta confess that that grade, that, the, that our appearance, that porn, the future job, that that cool boy or guy, that hot woman, okay, isn't the actual answer. It's just, they're just not. They aren't the answer we think they are. And if Isaiah and modern addiction science are at all right, the more we full court press these things to solve our existential problems, the more we're ensnared, the more self-destructive we get, the more depressed and anxious and irrational we become. So what's the second move we make after self-honesty? This is the easiest thing to say and the hardest thing to do. Ready? It's remembering our first mistake, the one we made before we chose the addictions of Egypt. We need to remember and return to asking God for help. Asking God for help. We need to turn outside of ourselves and ask for help in prayer from somebody on the outside. Somebody who always speaks the truth. Somebody who always possesses the power to change us from the outside in. Look, repentance is not a return to your self-effort. Repentance is not a return to more self-resolutions. True and lasting change is not inside out. True and lasting change is not me fixing me. True and lasting change is outside in. It's God fixing me. But what does it look like to really ask God to change me from the outside in? What does that look like? I love this raw and honest prayer that Don and Lori Chaffer put in the mouth of the Virgin Mary. This is band Waterdeep. They have this like Christmas musical, it's hard to explain, called The Unusual Tale of Mary and Joseph's Baby. And Mary sings this song I just like can't get over. I started listening to it over Christmas and I'm still like can't stop. Um, it's close to the beginning of the musical, which means it's close to the beginning of the story before the angel and before she miraculously conceives. But again, it models this expectant honesty of asking God's help in prayer. So again, this is fictional, but this is sort of a, a, a kind of idea of what it would look like to pray to God. Ready? I want to be delivered. I want to be set free. I want to get across these waters that were promised to me. Wandering the desert, a wilderness of shame. Drink, drunk on the worries of everyday life. We've almost forgotten our name. Mary continues, what does it take to wake you, God? To see you raise your hand. To hear your justice roll or your thundering command. Because hoping and never receiving, it wears a heart out. Don't make me wait till after I'm gone. If you won't deliver us, let us leave. If you choose another people, if you chose another people and you're moving on, just save us all the trouble of trying to believe and let your people go. Just let your people go. If we're honest, that's hard. What a beautiful prayer, okay? You might be like, that's a terrible prayer. But that's exactly where I want you, okay? The potential frustration of waiting on the Lord is what she's getting at, right? That's what prevents us from asking God. That's why it's so easy to say and so hard to do. 
in the first place, whether it's for the first time you've ever done it or the thousandth time you've done it. But expectantly waiting is the strategy that God is calling us to in verse 15. In the words of a friend, waiting is the Christian life. The Christian life is waiting. I know we hate that. We cry out, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. That's what that means. We plead with the hymnist, Augustus Top Lady. What a great name. We, pr- we plead with him, thou must save God and thou alone. And this is so tough for us. Look, according to the Boston Globe, an article in 2015, this is why it's tough. You know what our average attention span is? Eight seconds. Eight seconds. God doesn't work in eight seconds oftentimes. You know that's one second less than a goldfish? True. Do you know that's, that was four years ago? <laughs> with, le- with half the technology? Okay. And yet, look, we have this motive from Mary, right? That she couldn't even imagine at that point in the Christmas story. A God who patiently did arrive when the fullness of time had come. God shows up as the baby Jesus then, and God shows up by the Holy Spirit now. How do we know this? How do we know this still happens? Look at, with me at verse 18. It says there, of God's eternal character, eternal, always, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed or happy are all those who wait for him. God and his sovereign patience has determined to relentlessly and excessively love you. His perfect will is doggedly pursuing us, even as our struggles to pray, even as we struggle to give up that bad strategy, even as those things plague us, God is pursuing us. God's grace is enough, Sid. It's enough. God exalts himself. He raises himself up. This, the image here is really beautiful in the Hebrew. He's gently bouncing up and down on his tiptoes. He's so excited to forgive. Jesus raised himself up on a cross to die for our shame and hurt and all the false strategies we use to self-deliver us from shame and hurt. God the Father exalted his son Jesus from the grave. He rose him from the grave. And thereby he stamped sin and suffering, all sin, all suffering. He stamped it with an expiration date. It will go bad. It will spoil. It will be no more. God's mercy will prevail, O my soul. God waits. God is patient. God isn't finished yet. He has only just begun. But why not now? Why should I wait more than eight seconds? That's longer than the next Netflix episode loads, right? That's, that's take, why should I wait as long? I've waited as long as I wait for an Uber. I've waited longer than I wait in the lunch line at the den at 12.30 on a Wednesday. I mean, why cry out? Why wait so long for God to show up and for God to surprise us? Well, I'm going to ask a few questions in return. 
First one, have we cried out to God recently? Really cried out to him. Asked, just said it out loud in a journal, whatever. Have we asked about that situation? Have we asked about that relationship? According to verse 19, he will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. But some of you are asking, I'm always asking for this thing and he never gives it to me. What about the way I personally pray constantly for God to feel more real? And sometimes he feels more real, but oftentimes he just doesn't feel more real. This is what the scripture responds. The Lord is a God of justice. That literally means judgment, a God of judgment. Mishpat in the Hebrew. By context, God judges, okay? But his judgment is in his patience, a timing issue. He knows exactly when, he judges exactly when, and exactly where we shall weep no more. He judges exactly when and exactly where he will hide himself no more from us. He judges exactly when and exactly where in his patience he will clearly direct our ways as if speaking to us. The point of verses 19 through 21 is that God is already behind us. He's already in front of us. He's already at our side. Even when we can't see him, even when we can't hear him, even when we can't feel him, he's there waiting. He's there even when we've sent our officials to Egypt. He's there even when we're in the courtyard of the library with our once again, on again girlfriend and her parents. And I'd like to end with a story I heard recently of a friend of a friend. Um, And this friend of a friend took a homeless couple to Disney World with his family and it was they took a day off in the parks when you do this by the way this is a little suburban dad trivia um when you go to disneyland you you take a day off because the kids are meltdown central and they need a little time away from the churros and the rides and so anyway they take this day off and they go to target they decide to take the family and and the family decides to take the homeless couple with them to target and they're going to restock for the vacation but they also kind of the dad especially secretly is going to surprise the couple with some things that they need and some gifts so he's like really excited. And in the middle of the surprise, the wife of, you know, he's shopping, trying to do it secretively. The wife of the, of the homeless couple asks the dad for the keys to the family rental car. And he says, sure, he thinks nothing of it. And then kind of keeps going and shopping for his family and for the couple. But as he's walking out with all of his goods piled high in his shopping cart, he goes um, out to the rental car and he sees from a distance the husband and wife arguing, a couple arguing. The homeless man is so angry with his wife and shouts, she always does this. She always does this. And the dad asks, whoa, 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 whoa. She always does what? And he says, the, the, the homeless man doesn't say a word. He just drags them, pulls them over to the back of the, the rental car. And they look inside the trunk and there they see all a trunk full of shoplifted goods. Many of them, the exact same items, the family had just bought them. And were about to load into the car to surprise them with. I mean, maybe you already get the point of the story. It's hard to wait on God. It's hard to trust him to surprise us. It's hard to help trust him to surprise us with what we want and what we need the most. But if we only had eyes and ears to hear and eyes to see, 
we would hear God rubbing his hands as he walked up and down the aisles in eager anticipation. We would, we would hear him bouncing on his tiptoes at the cash register. We would see him loading the plastic cart to capacity with red and white plastic bags full of gifts for us. And most wondrous of all, that, that pales everything else in comparison, we would see and hear him trotting out towards us, shopping cart wheels grinding in the hot asphalt, his head poking over the piled high red cart, arms open sky wide with a sly smile that says, here I am at last. And you would hear the kindest words on his lips. He's patient. He's waiting on tiptoe to give to us what we need. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this character that you have. Thank you that you tell it to us. And it's hard to hear sometimes, but it's good to hear. And I pray that you'd help our unbelief. There's a part of us that really struggles with this. And it's, it feels like majority for some of us and, min, and a minority view for others. And I pray that you would really meet us in the middle. Um, that you would really um, show us your goodness us to capture the imagery here in our hearts. Help us to press into that. Help us to trace the shape of your patience together. In your name we pray. Amen.